It's the Derek and Mike podcast. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you being here. Hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike pod or on our website, DerekandMike.com. My name is Mike. This is my boy, Derek. What's up, Mike? What's up, everybody? D, some history in the making these days. Um, been watching as much as I possibly can, which is very little because I have no free time, to the uh, situation down in Texas where Haitians are clustering up around the border and uh, anxious to come in, and we are anxious to keep them out. And it's an interesting uh, set of situations going on over there. Oh, it's Haitians now, huh? Oh, yeah, I think I, I heard a little bit about that kind of floats oh. in. Oh. Um, yeah, I don't know much about the situation itself, um, but... Uh, so you, know, you yeah. see the pictures, right, where Border mm-hmm. Patrol agents on horseback are chasing down black guys. Uh, well, I guess and women, too, probably, but um, black people coming across the border in Mexico. So my first thought was, huh, I didn't know Mexicans were black. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, so then I'm like, wow, Haitians, okay. And then I try to wrap my mind around it, and I'm like, well, Texas is a long swim from Haiti. What are they, what are they doing in Texas? Florida yeah. would have been a much closer option or anywhere in between. So why Texas? I think if I was going to try to sneak into the U.S., I don't know that Texas would be my first choice. Um, you know, they don't they don't really fuck around in Texas. Um, so then I thought, okay, why are Haitians kind of trying to come through the border in Texas? And the answer I found was actually kind of interesting. Um, it sounds like, so in Haiti, Haiti's been effed up for a long time, right? I mean, they've had all sorts of problems, natural disasters, government corruption, um, just everything, dude, shortage of food. And I mean, dude, every problem that you can imagine Haiti's, uh, Haiti's had it or is having it. And my, my first thing I came across was government turmoil going on in Haiti right now. I guess the president of Haiti was assassinated like crazy style back in July, just a few months ago. And the current prime minister is a suspect in the murder. And I'm like, whoa, that sounds like some TV shit there, dude. Oh, that's right. I heard about that. Yeah, he was yeah, he was assassinated and um I heard there was a link to uh our guys. So what I read was a whole team of ex-military Colombians stormed the president's house with I, I like fucking full blown like military gear and just shot the place up, killed the president. Uh, shot it out with his security, and his wife was injured in the assault. I don't know if she was shot or maybe fell down a flight of stairs, or I don't know, but his wife was injured in the whole thing. Um, sound like a crazy, like, full-blown, like, uh, TV show raid kind of deal, where a whole bunch of ex-military Colombians, and from the article I read, two Americans were a part of the assault team, uh, two Americans that are from Florida or something. Yeah. And there's all kinds of crazy ideas about who financed or who put together this assault team and why and the whole thing. And some of the fingers are pointing back at the sitting prime minister who, as soon as the president was assassinated, the sitting prime minister, uh, Claude something, he he took over control of the country. So maybe that's why everyone's pointing their finger at him because he would be 
you know, the most likely since he's the one who picked up the reins of power as soon as the president was gunned down in his home. Uh, maybe not. Maybe there's more to that story. I don't know. But it's just crazy to think, wow, OK, a couple months ago, the president was full blown murdered assault style. And now the prime minister is being uh, accused of murder. And the U.N. is getting involved in trying to put together at least like a temporary functioning government because the whole place just fell apart. And I'm thinking, wow, that's all nuts. And that must be why Haitians are getting the hell out of Dodge and, you know, trying to wade across the, the, the Rio Grande and uh, are, you know, facing Border Patrol agents on horseback. Yeah, that, that sounds sense. that sounds accurate. Um, but mm-hmm. why, if they're fleeing Haiti from a fucked up government, that's understandable. But why would they go all the way to Texas? That's not understandable. And not even just like, why would they choose Texas? How the fuck did they get there? You know, did, uh, that, that's a long that's a long water way to cross to uh um, fail at the Rio Grande, which is no, basically well, they, just no, like a... They pay. They're paying somebody to escort them. They're not like, oh, deciding like, oh, hey, well, let's route this path. No, they have people that are, are offering them packages to get in the United States. And, so these are people uh, with enough money to get out of Haiti, hire like what, coyote teams that, that ferry them over into Texas and, and uh, Del Rio or whatever, where they're all trying to come across. I don't know if they're coming across more areas or just Del Rio, Texas, but that's the one you're hearing about. I think that would that's my assumption. Yeah, I mean, we know cartels have been massively involved in, uh, I guess, trafficking is one word, but also, you know, escorting people across the border. But that really kind of ties into trafficking, too, unfortunately, a lot of times, because once you get in their control, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice on on your future sometimes and uh, probably not the most comfortable situation to be in. So if they're fleeing from a situation in dire straits like that, um, most certainly I would say they see some very imminent danger coming their way. Uh, yeah. And like you so, said, they have the funds to get out of there too. So they're probably a little more on the wellish to do side or at least have enough to scrape together. Wow, that makes sense. So then another article I read was talking about why they're coming through in Texas. And this is an interesting set of answers that that makes sense. And it's pretty extended. And it, the boiled down version goes like this. In 2010 in Haiti, they had super bad earthquake. I think it was a 7.0, the article said. So a really bad earthquake, like 200,000 people died and, and like over a million people were displaced from their homes. And Haiti was fucking hit hard by this earthquake back in 2010, right? Yeah. Uh, a lot of Haitians fled the country and went to... Uh, a lot of places, but a big chunk of them went to Chile and Brazil. And the reason they chose Chile and Brazil was there were jobs waiting for them because they were putting that shit together for um, a, I think, a World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics in 2016. Uh, Something like that. A World mm-hmm. Cup and an Olympics were coming up soon. So a bunch of jobs are created around that, right? Because that's yeah. all kinds of tourism dollars and all kinds of economy boostage going on for the World Cup and Olympics. Yeah. So lots of work going on in Chile and Brazil. And Chile was cool about um, really easy to obtain work visas and that sort of thing. So it was an attractive place to to go and move your family, a place where you can get some, uh, you know, get a job and, and uh, get a house that isn't being knocked over by earthquakes constantly. All good shit. Then in like 2018, apparently Chile made it, uh, a lot of those jobs from the the big events started to dry up, you know, they go away after the event's gone. So a lot of those jobs started to dry up 
the Chilean government made it harder to obtain work visas. And so a lot of those Haitian migrants down in Chile and Brazil were like, well, we need to find someplace else to go. Or it's ah. expensive in Chile, apparently. I was surprised by that. But apparently cost of living is kind of high. Um, and so they were looking for other places to go, and they started kind of pushing north into Mexico. So there's this big wave of migrant Haitians who were fleeing the country in 2010, looking for work uh, in the Olympics and the World Cup in Chile and Brazil, lost those opportunities, started pushing north through into into Mexico, and then eventually, I guess, that led them uh, into Texas, where we're seeing them right now, clustering up in, in like, refugee camps. And and then uh, a lot of them back onto a plane, flying back to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, which oh, is really? Up. Oh, and flying back to Port-au-Prince. Well, yeah, so Biden's catching a lot of heat, dude. Joe Biden's catching a lot of heat right now from both sides. Um, my understanding, or the boiled-down version of the heat he's currently catching is... Conservatives are pissed because he's not doing more to protect the borders and keep Haitians out. The super far left is pissed because he's doing anything to protect the borders and keep Haitians out. And he's deporting a lot of people, uh, flying them back to Haiti, which a lot of people see as um, not humanitarian because Haiti's like super fucked up right now. And, uh, you know, these people are, are risking their lives and, and taking their families on this crazy journey to try to get to a place where they can survive. But they're being sent back to Haiti where, uh, you know, stuff's pretty goddamn bad, to say the least. But then the other element of if the theory of these people were displaced a decade ago by an earthquake and then trying to find work down in South America and then coming up through there, these people haven't been to Haiti in a decade. Uh, So that's a whole different level of of difficulty for them. It's not like they just fled because the government fell apart and the president was assassinated a few months ago. They... They bolted 10 years ago and have been trying to build a life. And what the hell's waiting for him in Haiti? Yeah, you know, um, I want to throw in there, too. I don't think that Haitians are likely to vote for Joe Biden as well. So I think that may come into play. <laughs> is his uh, is his uh, support among Haitians dwindling? It yeah, certainly is now. Yeah, it, That's well, for damn sure. I don't know what it was before, but now not good. Yeah, yeah. I think, well, it started with Hillary. Like, there's been a lot of Haitians that have... Uh, been very vocal about um, her fundraising efforts uh, down in Haiti and that uh, there was some criticism that supposedly a lot of the money that was collected for the Haitian earthquake just never made it to Haiti. Like, and and a ton of money was donated. So I think that um, they're probably tying her more to the Joe Biden side. And, um, and so... You know, that, that, I'm not saying I don't know if that's why they're being deported. I haven't looked too much into this story, but I do know that they're not uh, friends of like uh, Hillary and maybe by virtue, okay. not friends of, of Joe Biden. Well, well, apparently, and I don't know to what extent, but it's no surprise to me that America's been flexing their muscle and pulling strings in the turmoil of Haiti to better position ourselves. So we're playing a big role in setting up their temporary government, you know, trying to trying to play the American role and, and uh, basically control everything. So they probably don't appreciate that a whole lot. Um, I know that we would go about that uh, with our own interests in mind, probably much more than the Haitian people's interests in mind. I mean, that's kind of the American way of doing things. So maybe that's why they're not too hip on, on America as a whole. And certainly now they're pretty pissed at Biden. I know a lot of people who... Uh, 
are talking on the news and giving interviews who are either Haitians or or Haitian Americans or sensitive to the situation in Haiti for one reason or another are pretty upset with Biden and the way he's going about deportations and the handling of the whole thing. But I think he's I think Biden is kind of facing one of the first big tests of his presidency Um, because obviously there's a pandemic, but he had plenty of time to plan on his response and and his approach to the pandemic before he even decided to run for president. Um, Whereas this is like a brand new situation that he's having to respond to uh, that he probably didn't foresee or at least a long time ago didn't foresee. And and he's finding that it's. It's pretty difficult to please anybody, let alone one side or the other. He's got both sides pretty pissed off at him right now. Yeah, you know, I think that um, there's a lot to say on a subject like this. And, you know, the one thing that I do want to say is that I think the American people, we're all in this together, but, but we don't quite see it yet. Not, not everybody sees it. Like we, we all have a way of life that we want to protect and we want to maintain to, we want to continue. And, uh, I don't personally, I don't think it's going to continue, unfortunately. And I don't mean to be like negative on the subject, but, um, specifically, I think that we are in a war, uh, right now that, that we don't, we don't realize that we're in the war and we don't, totally understand who the enemy is as well, because we don't even know that we're in a war to begin with. And I think it's going to be more evident uh, in the coming months that that is the case. Um, But right now I just sound like a conspiracy theorist. Well, like, what do you mean? If you could break it down in as simple of terms as you, as you can think of, like, what what are we at war with? How are we at war? What, What does that look like to you? So, you know what's going on in Australia. Yeah, I like those videos that you sent me that are showing the Australians basically rioting against the, um, uh, what, the quarantine laws or or the stay-at-home mandates, stuff like that. Yeah, what they did was, that most recently thing was they they took the uh, construction workers and they said, you can't work unless you get the jab, right? So oh, they're mandating the the vaccine for construction workers, not everybody, construction workers specifically. And they went uh, Aussie style, like like grabbed fosters and a fucking hammer and just went to town. Yep. Mm-hmm. Nice. And and obviously, too, along with that, they have some extremely strict uh, lockdown laws. And yeah, you talked about that a little bit, I think, in the last show or the show before, where they're, they're restricted to a really small geographic area from their home. For any reason, they're not allowed to go very far at all, like super strict quarantine stay-at-home orders, right? Yeah, I think like three kilometers. Like, So they're allowed to go like three kilometers out of their home. Uh, they've uh, One of the southern states has had to install a government app on their phone, and when they get that message that says, hey, respond to me, they have to take a picture of their face with the GPS on um, so that they can know that, they are where they are, and that's every citizen in that oh, southern was that state. Australia or South Wales? I thought that was Wales you mentioned. I could be yeah, you know, I, I, wrong. I said I said South Wales, but I I got the state wrong. I I don't know what the states are named there. So so yeah. Australia is is saying you can't go very far from your house, three kilometers, and 
when we text you, hey, check in, you got to take a picture of your face with GPS coordinates. So you can say like, hey, that's my face and I'm right here within my three kilometer uh, circle of confinement. Yep. Yeah. Fuck so that. so that was instituted. They've built COVID camps there. Um, that sounds bad. Yeah. Anytime you build a camp, uh, hmm. Um, they've also started just more recently started going house to house, asking them if they've heard of anything about a, uh, or if they've heard of any, um, planned protests going on. So they're preemptively now trying to scare people from po- protesting. That going seems door like to pretty door. low tech, uh, insurrection research. No, I mean, it's a, it, no, I, I, I don't think that's what it is. I think what it is, is an intimidation. Anytime a oh. military person goes to your house, you're intimidated. I mean, they could oh. just as well call you. So they're you. not truly trying to learn like, oh, hey, Frank down the street was planning on, uh, you know, going out in the streets and demonstrating. Oh, okay. They're not really trying to obtain information. I'm sure that would be a happy byproduct, but really what they're trying to do is show their force in person to anyone who may be thinking about that. When they get a knock at the door and they go, hey, are you or anybody you know thinking about rioting? Oh, no, no, not me, sir. Not me. Uh, then that's an intimidation thing. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way uh-huh. I see that. Otherwise, like, why not just call people? You know, I should have it, said that in an Australian accent, but I'm not good at accents. <laughs> or are you thinking about rioting? Is that, that's, is that okay? That's pretty good. Yeah. All right. That was the best I could do. So, so that's going on in Australia, right? Um, Matt, and then also all the truckies uh, had blocked all the interstates there. Uh, what are so, truckies? Truck drivers? Truck drivers, yeah, they call them truckies. And they call like <laughs> construction workers like workies or something like that too. It's really kind of cute in a way. In a, no, I love cute, Australians. Tough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do. I just, I want to yeah. go there so bad one day. Um, we've talked about it before. I find them more hilarious than than any other nationality and then any other anything, dude, just there's something about the Australian sense of humor and the accent that I find hilarious. And uh, I just find them super cool. Like Australian people I've met, um, and maybe, maybe it's only been a few, admittedly, but the, the Australian people I've met are super cool. Yeah, yeah. I, I They're very straight talk. They're very straight. They give it to yeah. you straight and they're not, they don't bullshit you. I've never had someone that made me go, God, I really like that guy after he called me a cunt. Yeah, they do use those words too, don't they? There is another <laughs> video I don't think that I... Well, did I send you that one? Maybe, yeah, you did see it with, with the riot video. Did you hear the guy talking in there? He's like, oh, oh fuck. Oh, oh yeah. fuck. Oh. Yeah, when the police started like shooting um, tear gas or smoke bombs or whatever, like, oh, fuck. Yeah, like, it's just... You can't help but laugh. Even if it's a super serious, like, dire situation, you're watching this like, oh, my God, this is crazy. And then the guy says that, and you're all, <laughs> Australians. It, it, I know, I... It was a very serious situation, but then he's like, oh, shit, man. Or, yeah, I do a horrible <laughs> accent. I, I know it, I'm really bad at it, but I know what you mean, where you're just like, God, I love these people. Yeah, it was just so funny because it was just like his very first, it was a true reaction. It wasn't like uh, filtered or anything. It was just, oh, fuck. Oh, man. Cunts. Okay, so real quick, technical. You got to turn your gate a little less, uh, a little down a little bit. You're clipping. You're natural. Oh, sure. You're, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You sound a little bit clipped. Is that even better? If, even if a cricket starts kind of peeking into the background, that's all right. Okay. All right. And then I was thinking, when you're talking about Australia and about a three-kilometer perimeter around your home, I am a dumb American, and I have trouble 
um, visualizing a kilometer. Like to me, I'm just like three kilometers, duh, big question mark, and a glazed look comes over my face. Yeah. Uh, I know it's an easy conversion. Um, they're just a little bit shorter than a mile. So it's three kilometers is probably what, like three and a half miles or a little more than three miles. It's not a no, huge no, deal. No, no, it's shorter, I think. Uh, kilometers, I think, are, well, are they? I don't know. I want to say 2.2 miles. Oh, okay. So it's a little less. All right. Yeah I, yeah, I got that wrong. So I said it right. I just did it wrong where kilometers are a little shorter than a mile. And uh, so, yeah, that'd be a little less than three miles. And then it made me think of another thing I read fairly recently that was talking about just the metric system adoption as a whole. Oh, it's actually a, a book that I'm reading that is surprisingly interesting. That's about the history of cooking equipment. Now, try not to get too excited. I know you want to run mm. out and buy it right away. Um, but it's a, it's a weird book for me to read because I, I don't cook, but I love history. And this one's kind of interesting because it goes into the full-blown, like, history of, like, human eating implements and all that. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, yeah, I'm a nerd. And one of the things they talk about is how America is one of the only countries in the world that still uses cups to measure ingredients. Um, almost every other country in the world uses grams. And they give a reason why, and it makes perfect sense why. Imagine chopping up green beans. And it says, okay, use two cups of green beans. Okay, first, if you grab a handful of green beans and you throw it in a cup, measuring cup, uh, they're sticking out all over the fucking place like dreadlocks. Like, green beans don't just sit flush inside of a cup, right? Yeah. So how small do you chop up the green beans to get them to fill most of the space within the cup to measure an accurate cup of green beans? Huge question marks, total inconsistency. It's a stupid form of measurement for things like green beans. Even things like flour... Uh, if you just pour flour in from a bag into a cup, into a measuring cup, uh, you're going to get so much in there. But if you, like, pack it in, you can fit way more fucking flour. So the receptacle of one cup could be a shitload of flour or just a little bit of flour, plenty to totally ruin a recipe. Mm -hmm. And all other countries use grams. They, they use little kitchen scales where you're going to measure three grams of flour or whatever it is. And no matter if it's... Um, dispersed and full of air or packed in tightly three grams of flour is three grams of flour so it's a way better way to measure ingredients and anyway on this uh, long divergence what i was getting at is they talk about the metric system and how america is the only wait one of only three countries in the world who don't adopt the universal metric system and the other two countries are full-blown podunk dude like I mean, I'm sure they're great countries. I'd love to go visit them, but it's America, gigantic superpower, and Myanmar, Burma, um, who they probably got more shit on their mind than converting their measuring system. So I'm sure once they get around to uh, taking a look at it, once they're over their international instability, or their national instability, I should say, I'm sure they'll get around to adopting the metric system when they have a chance. Yeah. Um, and, uh, God, the other one, I don't even remember. It was some super obscure country that you just don't even think of. Uh -huh. um, so what's up with America and our reluctance to adopt a system that is clearly better than our own, measurement-wise? What, what, what the fuck with the metric system? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't claim, I'm not sure at all. I have no idea the roots of that. Miles, feet, inches, these are all ridiculous, archaic forms of measurement. The metric system makes so much more sense. Yeah, it's like divisible by 10. Everything is like divisible by Everything. 10. Yeah, yeah. When like a foot is 12 inches because some fucking Middle Ages king's foot happened to be that big. And he's like, ah, oh, forever all measurement will be by my feet. Like, really? It's ridiculous. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure, that there's some is kind of a, ridiculous. I'm sure, somebody profited off of it. Uh, profited off of <laughs> what? <laughs> this ancient king's feet? Well, well, not going off of the uh, metric system. Well, or is it just like American obstinance where it's just like, we use feet and inches. You can take your centimeters and shove them. Is it just American, uh, we'll do it our way -edness? I can't think of any other reason. It just makes more oh, no, sense nobody's to use changed the metric now. system. I mean, why Why would anybody dare change now? We all know feet. Nobody's going to, I'm not going to talk to my neighbor and say, yeah, go about 600 meters that way. Yeah, but we should. It makes more sense. And yes, whatever generation is, uh, whatever generations are alive at the time of change, it will be inconvenient for us. Um, but future generations will just live in the metric system. And within 50 years or 30 years, maybe, it'll just become the norm. And by 100 years, we won't even remember using it. We'll look back and just go, wow, that was fucking stupid. Why didn't we use the metric system earlier? This makes way more sense. And I only have to buy one set of sockets now. I don't need to buy this stupid metric set. Yeah, no. I mean, I, wait, yeah. no, I don't need to buy the stupid standard set. You only buy the metric set, is what I mean. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to finish my thought on that other thing that we were talking about, just because um, there was you asked a question and I was starting to answer it, and I feel like people might want to know what that oh, answer, at least according. Yeah, sorry, I'm all over the place. Yeah, don't let me uh, derail a good thought here by my fucking launch into why we don't adopt the metric system sooner. Sorry, no. Proceed. <laughs> 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 I think we need to teach it in school. But um, Canada is going through a similar thing that Australia is going through as well during this really? time. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. All of which you don't see anything on the news about. Okay. Uh, uh, France no, is going through the same is, thing. Belgium's yeah. going through the same thing. Um, <clears throat> uh, wow. Ecuador is going through the same thing. So, uh, you know, it, it, it starts to make... Is this about health? You know, I'm. You know, this is the question that people are starting to ask themselves: Is this this super draconian kind of lockdown thing? Is this really about health? Hmm. And when you start asking those questions, I think that um, you know you got to kind of start looking at every every time something happens, you always have to ask yourself one thing: Who benefits? Mm -hmm. Who is benefiting? And um, that's that's the critical question right there. You know, I mean, we can look at we can look at our lockdowns and we can say we can see that small business has been absolutely decimated. But other businesses have massively increased, massively increased, you know, and, and I'm not saying that that was the only driver here. But, um, you know, I really do feel like there is a common enemy that all these countries kind of roll up to that is trying to institute a uh, a new, this is a new kind of war, in my opinion. This is an, uh, something that we're not used to this kind of infiltration type uh, that, well, that certainly we're not, experiencing. Certainly not in anyone's recent memory. Uh, it's not that far off when many things like this were being... Um, pushed on the public, maybe not in America per se, but certainly in other countries. Um, Belgium is no stranger to oppression, right? I mean, fuck, Nazis were all over them back mm -hmm. in the 40s, 30s, 40s. Uh, that's, that's within the lifetimes of some people still living, but not within the recent memory of most people living. So I think people forget that. Um, but 
I don't know, dude. It's a weird, discerning, disconcerting thing that's going on across the board in all these different countries. And then it's also, like you touched on, really concerning that our country is ignoring it completely uh, and not... And not just talking about it. It's like total silence. The silence is deafening um, because you can tell that that's setting the stage for all those things to come here, trying to quell any opposition to those sorts of efforts before they, you know, start kicking off or or even even worse, like us speaking out on behalf of these other populations like in Australia or Canada or Belgium or wherever you just mentioned that yeah. that are already having some of these problems and that's all scary shit, dude. Um, yeah, yeah, that, and that's that's what you know. The media is not saying a word about it at all. Nobody even knows about. It. If I ask anybody, hey, what do you think about the COVID camps in Australia? What? No, nobody knows anything. And that's our first forewarning is that of something happening is by seeing it happen at other places. But that's being cut off from us. Why? Why is that being cut off from us? That's that's the scary part. And then you you couple that with the massive amount of censorship that we have on all these platforms. And, you know, we're we're, we're in a kind of a poisonous environment right now. Um, and, hmm. and in all everything that I said there, I'm I'm not getting into any left or right kind of side or anything like everything that I said is just indisputable right there. Not being covered by any mainstream media, uh, those draconian uh, things are happening in these other countries who who are first world countries. These are not like, um, you know, third world countries where we expect like uprisings to happen there. No, these are our our uh, our kin in a way yeah. or what we would consider like very close allies. All humans. Um, and, and France, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, the yeah, same yeah, thing totally. is happening in France. France, they're they're. Uh, it's even worse in France, I think. And they're, they've been protesting now for like almost a year and a half. Or no, more than that. Probably like three years straight, almost every single weekend. And it's well, like uh, not a peep like, either. Like bleeding into the same protests, like the yellow shirt thing going on and all that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Now they have okay. their uh, passport system there where people can't go into uh, a... Uh, a grocery store unless they've received the medical procedure that they're being forced to get. You mean the, the vaccine? Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So, so, they're, so, they're so regardless them, of which you side show, you're show on about card is, is what you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So regardless of which side you're on of that, you know, uh, when that system is implemented, um, like you might be pro or anti that on one side, currently but um two years from now when booster number 50 comes out and you decide you don't want to take it well you either take it or you don't eat so that's the situation yeah. that that is is being implemented and um hmm. you know we we need to wake up a little bit i think we need to wake up a little bit yeah yeah those are slippery slopes man and dealing with a public health crisis is a convenient means for implementing a lot of these uh, hyper-control mechanisms. And I think that's what's going on in a lot of cases. Um, yeah, there's there's a bad sickness going on out there, and we need to address it. Um, but it's really sounds like it's bleeding into uh, some excessive levels of control. 
Uh, it it is 99 over 99% survivable. So we have to mention that when we say it's bad is it, you know, it's relative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the flu has historically the flu that has disappeared now, um, magically, um, you know, I don't know. It just, I, I, it just, the whole thing just gives me a bad taste in my mouth. What do you, what's your theory on the flu? I, I don't have one. I don't think about it or learn about it enough, but I mean, wouldn't just the obvious easy answer be a lot of people are wearing masks and a lot of people are still kind of taking germ uh, aversion behavior, like, you know, just kind of staying clear or staying six feet and all that kind of shit. Wouldn't that just equal the flu uh, spreading much less? No, I think that um, I think the flu is still spreading. It's just that's an endemic thing that's never going to go away. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. No, I don't mean we've beaten the flu. I just mean it doesn't it just not spread around like it used to be as a side effect of all the extra uh, shit we're doing. Well, here's the thing about the PCR test. The inventor of the PCR test, who um, he died three months before all this thing blew up. What's uh, the PCR test? I don't even know that. That's the test they use in order to test uh, whether you have a vid or not. Oh, that's a COVID test. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're um, using all this fancy language. I'm too stupid. Well, so that test, uh, he came out um, a few years, maybe, I don't know, maybe five years ago, but there's a video of him saying this. He said, this test is not made, not meant to diagnose any illness, is what he said. This is not designed to diagnose any illness, point blank. Um, Okay. Because what it does is uh, it basically takes a small sample of you know, I think they go in through the nose, they take a small sample of that, and then they blow it, they magnify it by uh, a certain number of times. And that's called the, uh, I forgot what the name of that was, there's a name, but they, they do it uh, cycles. They do it, they've been doing it at 40 cycles. 40 cycles will show anything and anything. And his words, I'm paraphrasing again, is that uh, he said, when you look at the PCR test, the reason why you can't use it for this is because it gets down to the Buddhist notion is what he said, where you will find anything and everything. Everything is contained within everything. So you will find something in something else when you blow it up. So you're bound to find um, just a little particle of something, you know, especially when you magnify it 40 times. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to it's going to detect uh, it'll find anything like you can test it positive for anything. So at 40 cycles, um, which is, I think what they were using from the get go. Uh, and I don't know what it is. I think they've tampered it down a little bit now, but I think it maybe it's like 35. You're still going to find anything in anything. And that means like, if you have a cold, like that cold is going to represent itself as the illness. If you have a uh, a flu, it's going to also represent itself as an illness. So mm-hmm. as that illness. And, you know, that that's that's the uh, debatable thing. I mean, and he was very explicit in saying that it should not be used to uh, diagnose. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got you got that situation there where it's like, OK, and then, you know, they everybody wants you to get tested, get tested. Um, and, you know, so then they they go on, they report the results of the test and they say, Oh, they tested this. And so this many people have it. Well, I guarantee like my daughter had a little bug, like 
couple days ago. I guarantee if we took her in and got her tested, be like, oh yes, she does have it, because uh, her friend had a had the sniffles, and she got tested and uh, she had it. So it's like, um, you know, it's just driving uh, a lot of fear is is what it seems to be doing. And, um, you know, I think one of the things they're worried about is that people don't stop getting or do stop getting tested and mm-hmm. then you can't promote the fear as much. So, uh, you know, I, it's just, we're, we're not living in a, in a good place. We're, we're all living in fear over something that is highly survivable and, um, we're giving away our, our rights along with it. And, uh, you know, well, if, yeah. I think anytime something like that happens, which captures public opinion or public attention, um, the powers that be will use that as a uh, pivot point to insert some agenda into lawmaking, right? So even when there's like mass shootings going on, which is an ongoing problem and needs to be addressed in a lot of different ways on a lot of different fronts, there's uh, largely a lot of a lot of thinking that um, anti-gun laws are piggybacked into the wake of mass shooting events and you know that's that's certainly like an opportunistic lawmaker sort of a thing like hey this thing is um it's the hot topic right now it's the soup du jour so let's push on that anti-gun bill that we've been kind of sitting on for a little while waiting for the right time so i mean any any it's it's a gross way to think about it and i'm certainly not saying that i don't think we should implement laws to prevent or address the problem of mass shootings i totally do I'm just I'm no lawmaker and I don't know what those laws are. I'm just saying that I think that the powers that be use situations like that to um, opportunistically push certain agendas, whether or not it addresses exactly what happened. It, they just use public waves of attention because the, the public goes through periods of interest with even things like mass shootings. There's some mass shootings stick out in the public attention and people make a big stink and they seem to care a lot. Other ones go by without barely being noticed at all, which is really sad. Uh, it's a very fickle, um, a very fickle thing in the American public's behavior, at least, that uh, is exploited when it's, when the interest is peaked and just kind of swept under the rug when the interest is not peaked. Yeah. I mean, and look at like the Patriot Act, um, when the buildings came down uh, right away, they uh, implemented uh, the Patriot Act, which is really a an invasion of all our privacy. Um, I think the Fourth Amendment of um, unwarranted search and seizure. Yeah, uh, we we have given you know, and uh, crisis was there. Crisis was taken advantage of, and and this re- continues to repeat itself. Crisis is there. Crisis is taken advantage of. So at a certain point, then you've got to start to wonder. Um, and this is conspiratorial, but is crisis created so that crisis can be taken advantage of? There's right. that, there's that side of it too. Oh, and, sure. Okay. Or more than just opportunistic, like, Hey, this thing happened and it's captured the public's attention in this way. Let's use it as a way to push our, um, you know, the, uh, the violation of the fourth amendment bill we've all been sitting on waiting for the right time. Maybe now's the right time. You're saying that they may actually go and create the situation that creates the, the, the interest that allows them to push that bill. Yeah. Why not? And, and in fact, in fact, this is out in the open. This is not conspiracy theory either. You can find this document. Uh, it's called the project for a new American century PNAC. 
And what it did was it outlined um, the NWO, the New World Order. It's in plain words. Is, is This is not conspiracy. It sounds like conspiracy theory because we don't hear about it on the news. But literally, right. there is a document you can find, PNAC, Project for New American Century, where they talk about openly about New World Order. And what they say is that we need a catalyzing event like the Pearl, a new Pearl Harbor. Literally, I don't even think I'm paraphrasing that. Wow. And that you could, there's Which essentially some, is what 9-11 was, right? This was put out two or three years before 9-11. Hmm. Now, um, you know, it just makes you go, huh? Uh, so, and if you look at the names on that document, the authors of that document, you'll recognize every single name on there. Hmm. Wow. Like Derek, Derek Dieter. Is like Derek Dieter. Derek. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see that name everywhere. Yeah. So, you know, I always up to something. <laughs> I am, man, I'm always scheming and planning. So, you man. know, yeah. And I, and everything that is said there, like it's, it, it's looked at as being conspiratorial, right? And mm -hmm. but conspiracy just means it, I think the literal definition of conspiracy means two or more people conspiring behind the scenes, you know. So um I guess it is an appropriate word saying it's a conspiracy theory, but uh conspiracy theories have always gotten um uh been looked at as a kind of a negative connotation oh that's a conspiracy theory sure and you know he, also yeah. with a tint of crazy with like, a tint oh, yeah. he's a conspiracy theorist that's right yeah, yeah. so so tin, a tin a tin foil hat wearing motherfucker yep yep and and the thing is is that um you know and it's kind of it, it's almost sometimes a little bit like religion we all want to think that everything is so super simple like we all think that um the world just functions in a very simple way that there aren't like political killings and there aren't like um, uh, political assassinations that happen in the United States. Certainly if you ask anybody from the United States, it, do you think that there's actually like political assassinations that happen? People, oh, that's conspiracy theory. That doesn't happen here. Uh, oh. oh yes, it does. Oh yes, it does. Um, I, you're yeah, not, I mean, yeah. but, shoot. But the people that, that are involved in it, they also own the the reporting platforms that will not allow that to get out mm -hmm. so um you know there's th this is where this is the part of the world where we've all kind of ignored for so long because we didn't want to look i think mm -hmm. um and now it's crashing down on us i feel like a little bit more hmm. and uh that that's kind of my my theory about the entire thing hmm all right well, now I'm just depressed. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. You, you, that's pretty much uh, how Man. I feel most of the time. <laughs> We're fucked. The world's fucked. We should all just go and drink a tall can. I think we're going to come together. I think we're all going to come together. But I think we need to. We just need to recognize um, what's going on, uh, not in this country just per se, but on the other countries. And why are we not being shown this information? Uh, we do always have to have our eyes open and be skeptical. I always try to do that. That's something I want to instill in my boys is, you know, don't don't disbelieve everything, um, but be skeptical and question everything for yeah. sure. And do your own research, do your own thinking, take in information with an open mind and then go and, and do your own research and do your own learning. And I think like what uh, uh, 
H.W. Uh, Bush said, um, wait, am I thinking of H.W. Bush who said trust but verify? Or was that Reagan? I don't know. I don't know. We should trust but verify. Whoever that was. Uh, great line, whoever you are, question mark president. I think yeah, you're right. Yeah, we, we really need to. Um, no, just... no, it was H.W. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Anyway, who gives a shit? Yeah. But trust, trust but verify is a simple way of saying all that shit I just muttered through. Um, because it's a good way to live. Whether you're thinking about um, political motives or a good friend of yours or your wife or your co-worker or anything. It, it's good to trust but verify. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't you can't debate that. I mean, I... You know, is, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Unde mm. Indebatable. Un undebatable. <laughs> I don't know which one, but it's that one. That Man. reminds me of uh, Princess, uh, what was that? Princess Bride. Is that what he, oh. no, no, he said in, indubitably. <laughs> no, he said inconceivable. Oh, inconceivable. <laughs> that actor, dude, is so great. Yeah. Oh, man. I don't, I can't think of his name. I'm blanking on it. But he, dude, that movie, Princess Bride, what a wonderful movie. They don't really make movies like that anymore. Or if they do, I'm missing them. Because that movie, like, what a ridiculous premise. But it ended up being so good and, and so timeless, really. Like, that's one of those movies still where it probably came out 20 years ago or more than 20 years ago, I think. And it's just as fun today on a Sunday afternoon, chilling on the couch, just flipping around TV, and you see Princess Bride, you're like, oh, cool. It, it's still just as enjoyable as I remember it. Yeah, you're not changing the channel. Uh, I, no. I, love, I love that one scene where he's sitting there, there with Andre the Giant that like one guy that we were talking about in River where he was going to drink the poison and he put it oh, in. Oh, yeah. He said, like, I, I put it in one chalice. And then he was like, uh, <laughs> like, if you... Um, oh, he's uh, in that game of wits. And it wasn't with Andre the Giant. It was with uh, Inigo Montoya, the the Spaniard swordsman. Oh, and, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, so they were having... They, they sat down to a battle of wits and they had two goblets of wine and, and uh, the inconceivable guy had had said that he put poison in one of the glasses. Wait, no, maybe... Oh, no, it wasn't. It, was, uh, it wasn't Inigo Montoya. It was the fucking... The star, uh, Carrie Eloise. I don't remember the guy's name he played. Uh, Wesley. Oh, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was the star, the guy in all black and the black mask and the whole thing, and, and he sat down to a battle of wits with the inconceivable guy, and Wesley uh, put poison in one of the two goblets, and... He challenged the inconceivable guy to a game of wits where he mixed up the, the glasses between the two of them and was like, okay, now, do you think that you should drink the glass in front of you? Would I put the poison in the glass in front of you? Or would I assume that you were going to switch the glasses and take my glass so then I would have put the poison in my own glass thinking that you would have thought that? Or would I think that you are so smart that you would have known that I would expect you to switch them so you'll switch them back and drink your own glass? And it's in that endless back and forth. And then uh, the inconceivable guy drinks his glass, thinking that he figured it out, feeling very sure of himself, laughs, and then dies. And and, and what was funny, before he drank it, didn't he, he switched it one last time? Like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Because uh, he had said, like, oh, hey, did you drop your sword on the floor or something yeah. like that? And Carrie Eloise, <laughs> like, looked over down and looked at the floor like, no, I didn't drop my sword. And while his attention was down on the ground, the, the inconceivable guy switched the glasses one last time. Yeah. That was, dude, that was such a great scene. That was. And then, he, and then Inconceivable Guy laughed hysterically, drank his wine, and died. And then, 
uh, was it Andre the Giant who asked Wesley who how like hey how did you know that he was going to pick that glass and then the answer was actually I put poison in both glasses I've been building up a tolerance to that poison my whole life <laughs> yeah that was so hilarious that was just yeah. <laughs> uh, such a great movie dude and bow, wow. bow. <laughs> oh yeah the old lady bow. Oh, man. There's so many quotable moments in that movie. Uh, Like Inigo Montoya. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Are you the man with six fingers? I'm looking for a man with six fingers. Yeah, the six-fingered man. (laughs) And the six-fingered man turned out to be a huge puss. (laughs) He squared off with him with swords, and the six-fingered man just drops his sword and runs. (laughs) Yeah, he bolted. He was pretty oh, good man. for a little while, though, but yeah, he was uh, scoundrelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Great movie. Now I want to go watch it. Now I feel better, actually. That 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 brought me that brought me back to happy. Yeah, maybe we all need to watch that again. That was like a, that was like a conspiracy conversation chaser, like a palate cleanser. Yeah, it's like ginger. You know how much you yeah. love ginger. I fucking hate ginger, dude. I know. I had sushi last night. We actually ordered ta- um, Grubhub sushi. We had... Grubhub deliver sushi to our house last night. Oh, really? How was it? Um. Uh, really good. It was. It was. They don't do sashimi, which sucks. They did regular sushi and rolls, so we got some regular sushi and a bunch of rolls, and uh, it was good. That I was quite it. a pause there for a uh, for it being good. Did you look at your phone or something? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I got a text and I had to look at it, and so that was the. the oh yeah, I was like, I'm the thinking, like, of my pause. You're like, I was, was like, the sushi how was it? You're like, good, or did you get distracted? Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, it doesn't sound good. Yeah, it or doesn't sound good. I don't want any. <laughs> oh man, no, it was good. It was good. It was cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's something weird about eating sushi at home. Uh, not bad, just weird. It it feels like out of place at your kitchen table yeah. for some reason. Sushi yeah. needs to be in a sushi bar with the surrounding sounds of and smells of a sushi bar. It feels a little odd at your kitchen table, but because still really you, good. You have you, you kind of want to see the sushi being made, like pulled out of the the refrigerator, watch it be made, and then hand it to you. But when it's not, it's kind of like, oh, here's some black box sushi. Who knows? Uh, who knows what this yeah. has gone through? It may have been, you know, uh, sitting out for a little while. Yeah, who knows? I mean, what are you going to do? Like, uh, ask the sushi chef to make it again or something? Like, no, nah, I'm at home. I can't do anything about it. I'm eating what I got. Yeah, and you want it to be still, a little bit cold, just maybe a little bit. You know, sushi is one of these things too, where I feel absolutely obligated to eat every last bite, no matter how full I am, no matter how much it hurts. Like, I'll look at a sushi plate, and there'll be like four pieces left, and my stomach is on the verge of bursting and I'm so full, but I'm sitting there just like just four more to go. How like, can you get it, full off sushi? That's pretty impressive. I mean, you have a, oh. wait, do you have a big, you have a semi big appetite, I think. Or semi-big. it's average. It's average. You're not, you don't have like a mass. Uh, I like to think I can eat uh, more than the average person of my weight. I can eat a lot of food. I can almost eat a whole large pizza. Um, okay. which is a lot of food for one guy my size. I only weigh 185 pounds. And uh, that's it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. I can eat a good amount of food. I'm known among people who have eaten with me as someone who can eat a lot of food. So I, I think that's the best I can say. Yeah, I have eaten with you a good amount. Now, my takeaway is that your eating speed is quite slower than mine. 
you eat quickly, uh, but you don't eat often. I eat very often. Yes. Um, so that's kind of my, my claim to fame is I, I, and I could eat big portions too, but if I eat a big portion, I don't eat often, which is an obvious thing, but, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's my, uh, saying to you is always, Hey Mike, I know you're hungry. Because you're, you're pretty much always hungry. <laughs> hey, fat boy. <laughs> you're pretty much always hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all right. I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be fat boy. That's cool. I like food. You know what's weird is I love food, but I'm not a good cook. The, the few things I know how to make, I cook well. I'm good in the kitchen, but I'm very limited in my know-how. I don't know how to cook many things, or I haven't devoted any time to learning how to cook things. I don't even know that I've had a lot of interest or inclination to learn how to cook things. But the few things I know how to cook, I do well, but they are very few and basic. Do you cook? Um, you know, I haven't been cooking lately at all. Like Megan has really kind of taken over the ship on that a little bit more. Um, but I, I used to cook and I, I do enjoy cooking when I do cook. Uh, and um, I kind of know what you mean. You know, I think there's like stages in cooking where... You start off, you can just follow a rep recipe, you know, and at first you're kind of hyper vigilant about like having every single thing on that recipe. You're like, oh, mustard, black mustard seeds. I need to go buy those. And you go out and you spend like $12 on a thing of black mustard seeds. But then eventually, you know, you start learning like, oh, I can substitute that for that. Um, the mustard is not really a big deal. I'll pour a little bit of pickle juice on it instead. Uh, and mix that in with some mayo. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you start learning these little tricks. Uh, so I wouldn't, I, I think I'm a pretty good, well, I'll just say what Megan says. Megan says that I'm a good cook. So mm -hmm. uh, I do enjoy that. And really, it all comes down to seasoning, I think. Yes. And if you're only going to do a few things, then do them well. And I think that's where I've landed. It's like, yeah, I can only cook four meals, but those four are fucking good. Um, just don't ask me to try something new or I'll totally botch it. Let me try to guess here. Four things. Okay, I know mm. they all contain meat. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one of them is gonna be tacos. Ooh, wow! You know me well. Tacos are one of my specialties. Yeah, baby. Okay, I make some bomb tacos, dude. Okay, let me let me keep going here. Let me keep going. Ooh, I mean. Mm. I guess I mean I'm thinking hamburgers. I know you love hamburgers, but I mean that might be a little bit too plain vanilla. Maybe you're not willing to put that out as like one of your gold standards. But is it? Is it? I'll just say, is it hamburgers? No. And the reason there is, I can cook a good hamburger, but I think a really good hamburger has certain ingredients like iceberg lettuce and really good fresh tomato slices, um, stuff like that. And I don't often buy those, so it's rare that I've got fresh iceberg lettuce and big tomatoes in my refrigerator. Okay. Yeah, so just, I can't just say meat. Let's see. So I'll just say, how about enchiladas? Uh, ooh, oh, no, dude. That's that's like uh, cooking, cooking. No, I've never made yeah, enchiladas. That's baking, yeah. That's the a... wife makes great enchiladas. She makes really good ones. Well, she's a really good cook, isn't she? She really is. Yeah, she's very experimental. She's very... Um, creative and artistic about it, meaning like like what you just said, where you're like, oh, shit, I don't have this ingredient, but this other thing that I do have would be a perfect substitute. Um, she's really good at that, imagining her own mix of flavors and balance of stuff and all that. And uh, yeah, she put some stuff together 
from leftovers that I'm like, wow, I had no idea this was meatloaf from last week. Like, this is incredible. Um, not like literally from last week, but, yeah. uh, you know, a couple what I mean? days like, ago. Oh, that, yeah, it's like, okay, so we've got a bunch of leftover chicken and we've eaten chicken for two days. I don't want to eat just regular chicken. So I'm going to do something creative with it. And she'll pull together some new meal, some pasta or some fucking Thai dish or whatever, where I'm like, wow, this is the chicken from Wednesday. Not bad. Yeah, no, that, that is definitely a skill. Um, yeah, I, I've, that, that right there is kind of like, it, it turns into an artistic form really where you're like, okay, uh -huh. because you, somebody like that, like her can look in, in your pantry and just say, okay, you have this, you have this, you have this, I can make this, you know, and they just know yeah. what they can make. Like just based off that of, they don't, they're not looking in a cookbook. They're not like going out to buy anything, but they just know what they can do. That really yeah. is a skill. I, I, I have a lot of respect for that. And it's a skill born of necessity where she's always been good at that, but she's also in the past had time to uh, think about things, read recipes, look for ideas, go to the store and get what she needs. Whereas now that's all much harder than it used to be with kids. So really it's a game of, okay, what do I already have and how long do I have to work on this? And the answer is very often you don't have much and you have even less time to do it. Go. Um, so it's kind of like a, she, she jokes and says it's kind of like being on the show Chopped, where you just get like three or four bullshit ingredients that don't go together, and you have 11 minutes to make an awesome meal out of it. That's <laughs> that's how dinner looks very often at our house. And she would be great at Chopped, because she's really good at that game. I want to get back on her, but I forgot what um, what are your other three that you do. Oh, oh. I, I, I don't know that I had them all enumerated. I just picked the number four out of, the, out of my ass. Um, what else do I make that's pretty good? Eggs. I make really good eggs. Um, and that sounds common or super easy. Like, yeah, everybody can make eggs. But now I make better eggs than everyone, anyone. I, I'd, I'd go toe-to-toe -to -toe on egg making with anybody. Really? I mean, really do tell, eggs. because I, I think I make really good eggs, too. But I oh, want to no, hear... I'm better than you. <laughs> 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 well, okay, well, how do you... I have, I have two ways. I do a really okay. great fried egg, uh -huh. and I do really great scrambled eggs. Okay. I don't really... Yeah give a shit about hard-boiled or any of that kind of stuff. I, I can do that. I don't do it often. Really, for me, it's either fried egg or scrambled egg, and I can kick ass at both. Um, okay. I, can I segue in here with my scrambled egg recipe? Tell so, me. Just in case, so I didn't know I'm not piggybacking on you. Okay. So nobody likes overcooked eggs. Yuck. Right? You need a little... They need to oh, be fluffy. Yes. So, They're like, that is key. that's the necessity. So, for me... Uh, the pan has to be turned down pretty low. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, I like to put an, if I have, if I'm going to like go all out, right? This is my all out recipe. I'm going to put a little bit of uh, natural Parmesan cheese, just a little bit, not too much. Cause you don't want those big sticky dry eggs, but just a little mm -hmm. bit of Parmesan in there. I will put a little bit of pepper beforehand. If I have heavy cream, I'll pour in a little bit of heavy cream in there too. Mm. And then have you ever tried huh. cottage cheese instead of cream or milk? Oh, no, I haven't. Now, that sounds that's not good. my idea. It's my oh. wife's idea and it's fantastic. Give it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. That boy, that sounds like bread and butter now that I think about it. I mean, cause cottage mm -hmm. cheese is like the consistency that you want for your uh -huh. eggs. And not a whole yeah. ton, but uh -huh. yeah, just a little bit of cottage cheese makes them nice and moist, and it gives a nice little flavor addition, great texture. 
when she told me that the first time, I went, "Ew, no, I don't want that." And yeah. uh, they're they're fa- it's fantastic. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and yeah. then um, and then then just the cooking method. You know, it, they're always moving. You know, I'm always moving them. I'm I'm not. There's not a time when you know I'm I'm not kind of well. Mm-hmm. You let it. I just put it into an egg pan, basically, you know, one of those smaller pans. And uh, right when I start to think that it's getting hard on one side and I can kind of flip it, I flip it and then um, just keep flipping it, really. And and I, it needs to be shiny. I, I can't take it, you know, I can't overcook it. That's that's the biggest thing for me. But, yeah, that that's my egg thing. Now, I, overcooking me, I, completely yeah. ruins it. It's got to be light and fluffy. Mm-hmm. And so as far as ingredients... It kind of depends. I don't have like one mix that I feel like is my is my crowning achievement. Uh, I do like diced up jalapeno or bell pepper or even little ham chunks or something like that. Like I'll even mix in meat sometimes like turkey if we've got some leftover turkey from dinner the night before or whatever. Like I'm not picky about additions. I also don't do additions to eggs very often. Sometimes I'll just do the only ingredient is eggs. But it starts yeah. like this. Like if I'm making oh, – oh, okay, so mostly on, on weekend – mornings uh i'm up with my two-year-old while my wife is still kind of getting our baby uh through his little morning thing she's not a giant early breakfast eater but i like to eat breakfast really early and my two-year-old wakes up early so it's usually just he and i having breakfast together and what that looks like is six eggs scrambled um he eats one and i eat five wow (laughs) that's (laughs) a lot of eggs (laughs) (laughs) so it's a pan full it's a big fucking it's a full 12 inch pan full and so I start with avocado oil. I don't use olive oil or butter. I use olive uh, avocado oil in the pan okay. and crack all the eggs directly into the pan, uh, mm. mix them all up, and then turn on the fire. So it starts slow. Really? And while the fire is going and it's still super cold liquidy eggs, uh, that's when I put in all my seasoning. So I'll put in some, like, red crushed pepper, some black pepper, uh, and some salt. Um and the ratio of all those are pretty important. And then it also depends. If I'm, I'm cooking for my son, I can't use a lot of red pepper. If it's just for me, I'll use a lot more red pepper. Yeah. Um, but I'll kind of start mixing them with a uh, silicone spatula stirry kind of thing pretty early on. And then once they start to firm up a little bit, I'll let them sit for a minute while I'll go like, I don't know, throw some toast in the toaster oven or whatever. And once they thicken up a little bit, I do one final mix, kind of chop them all up, get it off the sides, make sure they're all kind of piled in the middle there and, they're still liquidy, but getting thicker. And then I'll let them sit for a minute to get the bottom side fairly cooked. Then, since it's a whole pan of six eggs, I've got to, like, chop it into four sections so I could flip each section over. Yeah. And I'll flip each section over where the liquidy side is on top, flip it over the liquidy side on the bottom, get all, all the whole pan flipped over so it's fairly cooked on the top now and still liquidy on the bottom. Then I'll turn the fire off, and I'll put a lid on the pan and let it sit there. Oh. Now, let it sit there for about five minutes. Usually, I use that five minutes to wash my son's hands and get him into his high chair and and uh, kind of get him ready and all that. And I let the, pan, the eggs just kind of sit there in the off pan with a lid on. And the ambient heat just continues to cook the eggs from the liquidy bottom side. And sitting there for about five minutes or whatever, by the time I, I serve everything else and all that, the eggs are the last thing I get because they have to be the best. Everything else can kind of, you know, sit for a minute. But I'll get his dish all set up and the whole thing and everything's ready. Uh, TV's on to the right cartoon he wants to watch. Like, okay, we're ready to eat. Now I'll go get the eggs and I'll just go and pull the pan, pull the lid off, serve the eggs. They're super thick and fluffy and airy and still hot. 
and yeah. put those directly onto the plate and eat them within seconds of pulling them off the pan. And they are super fluffy and just awesome. That sounds that's good. A, yeah, the, I like the, the uh, turn off the, the heat and cover them. That's an interesting twist on that. It's almost like steaming a little bit, but they just get juicy, fluffy, and they don't overcook. Yeah. I like it. You must use a nonstick pan. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah I do. Yeah, yeah, because with a, I use some steel pans, and mm. if you're going to cook with a steel pan, you have to preheat it, and then you put the oil in after it's been heated. Yeah. And then after you do that, and you, once it gets to a certain temperature, um, then you can put the eggs in and they won't stick. But otherwise, like if you gotcha. if you turn it on, you, there's no way you can do that business right there where you put the eggs in an unheated pan uh, yeah. along with the avocado oil and, and do that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. So that's the 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 nonstick pan I use is this Anilon brand. I really like it, and I have tried steel pans. I bought a couple of all clad plant pans, and I really wanted to be good at it, and I wasn't, and I didn't dedicate a lot of time to figuring it out. So the first few pans of eggs I made in steel was a fucking disaster. Half of them remained on the pan. Yeah, and you threw the pan away. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I cleaned it and all that, but I tried to do the whole seasoning thing where you kind of, you know, slow heat uh, oil all over the pan and then let it cool for a long time so that it seasons with the oil to make it, to make it not, to make it like stick less and all that. And, and then you can't wash the pan after you season it. So I'm like, well, how does that really work? You know, am I just kind of like wipe it down with a towel? Like how do I clean the pan when I'm done with it? And all that just seemed like a big question mark. And I watch YouTube videos of how to use and how to care for stainless steel pans and all this. And then eventually I just decided this is too much fucking work. I'm using my nonstick pan. Yeah. Is that an all a steel pan or you're talking about a, um, uh, an iron, uh, what is that called? Oh, a cast iron, cast iron. No, all clad is stainless steel, but the version of their pans that I used is like a multi-layer. I think it's alternating aluminum and steel. Aluminum disperses heat better and steel is more durable or heavier or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have this uh, special all clad thing they do, which is like alternating layers of aluminum and steel, but it is stainless steel. It's a stainless steel pan. Oh, okay. That's I, did, I just didn't know you could steel. season a stainless steel pan. I didn't, I've never heard yeah. that before. I, don't know. I knew that's, you could uh, see, yeah. Okay. That's what smart people tell me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, so uh, that's, uh, yeah, eggs. I that's, yeah, I that's, can that's, see that's how I make eggs. That's a lot of eggs. That's a lot of eggs. And, um, I like eggs. Yeah. Uh, is that a daily thing for you? Like every that's single the weekends. So oh, every oh, weekends, morning yeah. I make myself, I eat every morning, like around 6 a.m. before everyone else wakes up. I wake up early, I work out, I make myself eggs and a protein shake. That's pretty much my everyday morning breakfast. Um, where I make myself four eggs right now I'm doing four eggs, uh, cause I'm trying to cut weight. And then when I'm trying to bulk, I'll do like five or six eggs in the morning. So I just fluctuate my egg quantity in the morning, uh, which is an easy way to boost or reduce calorie intake. Uh, so it's super easy. I don't have to measure or think about it. Four eggs when I'm cutting five or six when I'm bulking. And so right now I'm cutting, so I'll work out and then eat four fried eggs and two pieces of toast and a protein shake. And that's my breakfast every morning. Except on the weekends when I eat with my two-year-old, then we make a big pan of six scrambled eggs together. Gotcha. I, I'm like, yeah. okay, I've never seen you work out. Like, that's that's new. I mean, that's keto new. That's Or after keto new, right? Yeah. 
So I started working out about two years ago. And it, it was all, like you said, at the same time as keto. So I became interested in eating better, which at the same time made me interested in physical activity. So I started exercising. And it started off like literally just doing like a sit-up and push-up regiment every day because I had no equipment or anything at my house. And so it just started as doing some sit-ups and push-ups every morning and trying to be regimented and, and routine about that. Once I built that habit, I wanted to buy like a set of dumbbells and start working that into my morning routine. And that eventually grew into building a full-blown gym in my garage. And so now I would just work out in my, in my garage gym every morning, most mornings, five or six days a week. And most mornings I'm working out um, in the morning in my garage and then I do breakfast and then I prep my son's breakfast and then, uh, uh, get him going. But on the weekend I do all the same workout timing and everything, but then I just wait and eat breakfast with him when he wakes up. That's pretty cool. I'm trying to picture. Yeah. I mean, I guess you, yeah, you really didn't work out much at all back then. What do you, you no. do like 30 minutes or, or longer? Or? Um, it depends. Like some workouts, like if I'm doing a certain muscle group is faster than others, like shoulders is a pretty quick one. Um, other ones take longer. Like if I'm doing arms where you're doing biceps and triceps, that's a little bit of a longer one. Chest takes me a long time. I'm not good at working out my chest. It's hard to really make it sore and really hit my chest. I don't have a lot of chest muscle. So it's that workout for me. I try to focus on more and do more activity, trying to get some kind of fucking chest muscle going. Yeah. Uh, so that one takes a little while. I'm not good at it. And I don't know. So some workouts take an hour. Some workouts take 30, 40 minutes. That's usually about the the time frame. Oh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, I like a new it. mic. Dude, <laughs> honestly, bro, I mean, it's it's a fun hobby is the way I look at it. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not really great at it. I'm getting better, but it is taking a long time since I'm doing it myself. I don't have any instruction other than, like, YouTube channels where personal trainers teach you how to work out. So I'm trying to do that, trying to learn how to work out. For me, it's more the benefit is routine, which really benefits me physically and mentally. And then to be totally open and honest, one of the biggest benefits I notice from working out is a replacement for pot addiction, where I smoked pot for many, many, many years. For a lot of people that have known me for a long time know that I was a habitual pot smoker for a lot of years. Yes. And before my boys were born, when my wife was pregnant, I quit smoking pot and I realized that I had an addictive personality and I had to replace that addiction with something else and eating well and working out became that addiction replacement. Um, so that's what it's become. It's become the new addiction, a much better addiction than smoking pot and drinking beer. Uh, so now I'm just more uh, habitually addicted to working out every morning and eating better. And it's totally filled that void, which is great. And then a nice side effect that I found out is um, reducing or eliminating depression entirely. Like, I don't even know if I ever talked to you, you about that, but I ended up developing pretty bad depression, or maybe I had depression for a long time and I only started realizing it um, later on in life. Yeah. Or maybe it got worse later on in life or whatever, but I really did start to struggle with depression. And that kind of played into my decision of quitting pot, too, because when I read about common causes of depression, uh, marijuana use was pretty high on the list. And I don't know that quitting pot played as big of a role as beginning to work out because working out helps fight depression when you're yeah. building endorphins and all that. It reduces depression. So somewhere in that mix of not smoking pot and starting to work out 
I feel much less depressed or I have much fewer problems or frequent occurrences of or any existence of depression at all, that uh, it's a good mix. So I, I feel great. I feel happy. I'm happy with that mix. I don't know which of the two things contributed more to the lack of depression, quitting pot or starting to work out, but um, all good. All good stuff. Yeah, no, that that's definitely positive. Um, yeah, the working out it it just changes your outlook on the whole day, huh? I, you know, uh -huh. I don't I don't do it as religiously as you. I do it two or three times a week, and I do have a personal trainer uh, because I'm kind of the person where if I don't pay for it, I kind of won't do it. Um, but and I got to give a shout out to him because he's literally like I I, I think he is one of the best underrated trainers that's in LA. Um, mm -hmm. He was in the NFL for five years. So he's taught, he's trained with, you know, the elite. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I asked him, I was like, you know, did you learn all this stuff? Like in your uh, being trained in the NFL, he was like, you know, the, the NFL trainers themselves were actually really good, but he learned the most in the off season because the, the really good ones will like, they just, they don't ever stop training. So, you know, the, the ones that he worked out with, like in the off season really taught him a lot of stuff, but I mean, right. he knows everything about the body, everything. Huh. Like I, I can have a cramp in my calf and he'll tell me like, okay, start now press on your knee and he'll show me like, he'll demonstrate like, okay, wow. this is where you press or, or press up here in your, in, in your, um, your hamstring, you know, and and uh, when I was over in LA, he would actually take out, he would bring out the massage gun. So there was some times where like I would start working out and I was too tight. He's like, you're too tight. We can't do anything. Uh, and it would, it would evolve into just a, a very rigorous massage with a massage gun. And Damn. it hurt like hell. Some, I mean, it was not pleasurable at all. It was therapeutic though. And it fixed it. And a lot of times it would fix it. And then we could get back to working out. Wow. Um, I mean, literally, I've I've never known anybody that uh, was that good. And his name is Jonathan Amaya, uh, and he's at Sports Training LA. On, Are you still uh, working with him, Pico. like through the internet or something? Yeah, I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, that's we, how you do. Like, I know you're still seeing personal trainer, but that's that's how you're doing it. Yeah, all all, all through just remote. Yeah, we do it remotely uh, two times a week, um, at least two times a week, and. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's all through there, and I, I just love working out with him. It's so hard. It, it's so hard. But what's strange though is like his workouts, uh, I, and I think this comes from like elite training. They're not um, they're not rigorous. Well, no, they're not stressful on the body at all. But they're but literally like almost every time I'm done working out, I want to collapse, and I'm just like that was so hard. I wow. mean, I, I must burn. I, I don't even know how many calories I burn, but it's mostly just like core stuff where I'm doing like push-ups, or I have uh, one hand on a Bosu ball and I'm doing push-ups that way, or or I have my feet up on a Bosu uh, and I'm doing push-ups. Or I mean, it's huh. not all push-ups, but it's just. Uh, so you're not doing a lot of like bench press or bicep curls or like standard weight movements. No, definitely doing those as well. Like okay. the other thing with him is. And I've been working out with him for probably, man, maybe it's been, oh, it's been over three years, I think maybe four years. And he's, um, every single workout, every single workout, there's a new, a new thing. Uh, 
he, we don't re, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some things that are, that we do repeat every once in a while, but like literally like it's not the same routine every time. Never, never has been. And every single time it's a new something. Um, well, I know keeping your body on its toes is a big benefit to getting results. Like I know sometimes since I, I don't have anyone overseeing my programs, it's just me going into my garage every morning going, okay, it's arm day again. I find it very easy to mindlessly go back and do the same arm exercises over and over and over again that worked really well a month ago when I started doing them. But now three or four weeks later of kind of doing the same thing every arm day, it becomes much less effective. And then I'll realize, oh, dude, you've been doing the same exercises for fucking five arm days in a row. Uh, so then I'll switch it up and break up arm day or change something or do different, uh, do a different order or a different number of reps or go heavier or lighter or do different exercises entirely. And then all of a sudden, boom, you get like a big time difference in the effectiveness or like the soreness afterwards. Like, oh, wow, I really hit my arms better today because I fucking changed something. Um, so changing it up and doing something different all the time, I think forces muscle growth or, or strength improvement, or it forces your body to change because your body just becomes used to certain things. And if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, it uh, becomes less effective. Very true. And, you know, a good site for you might be um, exrx.net. So ex, like uh, exercise prescription, exrx.net, I think is what it All is. Right. They have every exercise on there. Uh, not just the exercises, but they also have um, all the not the main, not the just the main exercises, but the, all the auxiliary exercises. And you could you could either go and and go from the exercise perspective and say, okay, I want the different types of pushups, or you can like have look at the map of the body and you could say, okay, I want all the tricep things, or I want like uh, the auxiliary tricep exercises. And they show you all those too, and they have all demonstrations in there too, and it's free. Uh, it's That's a really cool. It's a really good resource. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are so many great things out there. There's a lot of bullshit out there and stuff that can get you injured. But I've, I've found a few personal trainers who have like YouTube channels that are really good and their, their way of instructing and teaching things really works for me. I get it. And what they're doing really makes me feel uh, like I feel like I'm getting I'm doing it effectively. And mm. the first one that I use all the time is Athlean X. This guy, Jeff Cavalier, who's like a physical therapist and he does physical therapy for a lot of like consulting or whatever for like a lot of pro sports um, teams or athletes personally or whatever yeah. but he works with a lot of big names and he's got a great YouTube channel where he puts all kinds of great workout videos up that have to do with building muscle and then also like um, improving mobility and all kinds of different exercises depending on what your goal is and it's pretty cool it's like I said earlier, dude, it's a hobby and it's a fun hobby. It's something that I was never good at and never did. And now I want to do it. So I want to learn about it and do better at it. So it's a fun thing to work at. And I don't know, it keeps me occupied. It gives me something to be addicted to. And it's all healthy and positive. And I think it sets a good example for my boys when they're old enough to notice that I work out every day. I think it's good for them to see that. Um, you look great, by it, the way, too. I mean, you know, for so many years I've known you where you just had extra pounds on there. And like, yeah, I was, and don't I was get, walking and, around pretty heavy forever. Yeah. And yeah, now you're just, uh, you're, you're fit and thin, fit, fit as a fiddle. Ooh, fit as a fiddle. <laughs> how, how, uh, how modern of you? What a cool phrase. Yeah. I thought I'd, uh, come out with like a 1900s like a, a century yeah. old statement there but Man, a you had to dig that one out of a dusty old box 
shit. Yep. So yeah, yeah. No, really no, I appreciate spiffy. it. Yeah. Dude, and I feel good, <clears throat> and it does feel good to look better. You know, you like you build muscle, you get a little more trim, you look better and better in a t-shirt. And so that part's cool. I'm not going to say it's not, but the real benefit for me is um, the happiness that comes from a routine. And I think some people like routines and some don't, you know, but yeah. I do. I love routine. So that part feels good, feels controllable. Like I feel like I'm managing my day. I feel accomplished and and uh, I like that. All that uh, all that creates happiness for me or satisfaction, I think. So that part's good. And then the depression thing is good and giving me something to focus on besides the old bad habits that I used to have that I had for so long. Like it's just all good. There's nothing bad about it. So I'm, I'm happy. I like it. Sometimes it's tough. Because I do it early in the morning and we got kids and sometimes sleeping isn't in the cards. But I fucking still, for the most part, get up. And even if I only slept two or three hours, like, it's not will I work out today. It's just what I do. I mean, I just, I have to, whether I'm tired or not. I mean, I'm just kind of like, well, fuck, this is going to be hard. But I still do it, you know? That's great, man. Yeah, I, I think I remember Adam Carolla once saying it's like, you know, if, if you have depression, he, he said, uh, and I want to be sensitive to some, because some people do have a depression that is uh, more chemical balanced, uh -huh. I think sometimes. So yeah. there, there is a demarcation there, but in all cases, some form of physical exercise is going to put you in touch with, uh, yeah, it's going to lift you up. You know, there, there's no, so, yeah. so I don't want to make like a ubiquitous statement saying like, Oh, exercise is definitely going to pull you out of depression. But that's what Adam well, Kroll is kind of saying. Like, you know, you, you run five miles a day and you're not going to be depressed. There's really no, you know, it, well, I mean, for a few, generally. for a few fronts, first it's, it's, uh, mentally beneficial in a lot of ways. It makes you feel like you're doing something. It makes you, I mean, if part of your depression stems from feeling like a failure or being down on something in general, like going out and doing something for yourself, that's physically beneficial makes you instantly feel good about that decision. Even though you're tired as hell, it feels good. And then there is also a chemical component to it. Like building endorphins is chemically beneficial in a lot of ways. And I'm no scientist or doctor or whatever, but um, I don't think there's a lot of debate around endorphins being beneficial. And and uh, so I think even like, like clinically depressed people, like I don't even know where I fall. I've never been diagnosed with anything, but I know depression runs in my family. And I realized that I have it too, and it would strike me pretty bad at times. And um, that's kind of when I was like, okay, I want to do something different. I think it would be fun to quit pot and see if I can do that. Uh, part of it was seeing if I could do it because I knew if I quit pot, I would go through like withdrawals, which like any smoking or any addiction or whatever, you go through withdrawals, which for me, I was very edgy and I couldn't sleep and I lost my appetite and I was kind of a dick. Um, so going through those withdrawals was like a challenge to myself. Like, okay, can I do this? What's it going to look like? I'm going to do it. Uh, I'm going to just tough it out. And... Um, trying to figure out different natural ways of easing that transition time was fun and a fun hobby. And then going through it and coming out on the other end going like, okay, I don't smoke pot anymore. And I feel great. I'm, I, I could totally pee in a cup right now and test clean, which is a first for me in a really long time. And, uh, that felt cool. And then getting into working out and eating better and all that is just felt fantastic. So it was a really cool, positive change in my life. I'm stoked on it, enjoying it. Yeah, no, that's, that's great, man. I, um, you know, I think we all have like some levels of depression there and yeah, there, there's the, 
definitely, I think one of the biggest things is like the acknowledgement of it. And it um, was for me and not even like I knew it and was afraid to admit it. Like I didn't really realize it. Yeah. Uh, until it got pretty goddamn bad and it was inevitable or it was, it was, uh, unavoidable or unmistakable. I was like, oh my God, I have depression. And then I was thinking, of course I do. It totally runs in my family. Why wouldn't I have depression? Uh, it was kind of a, I was probably the last one to know, honestly. <laughs> I never have looked at you as being a depressed person. So it's, that is, um, kind of hard for me to see, but I mean, yeah, you did smoke a lot of, uh, cannabis, uh, yeah, yeah, an abundance of cannabis. Yeah, yeah, I like cannabis yeah. You know, instead of pot, and yeah, feel like I'm cool one of the young kids it. now. You know what's weird about me and pot is I still don't consider myself someone who used to smoke pot. I can't cross that bridge. I don't want to feel like I quit, even though I did. I haven't smoked pot in two or three years. Uh, I I still think of myself as someone who's not smoking pot right now even though I have no intention of smoking it again or anytime soon or whatever, but I don't, I feel like I don't want to close that door on declaring myself an ex pot smoker. I'm just not smoking pot right now. I don't know how long right now is going to be. It could be the rest of my life. I don't know. I'm not worried about it, but I do have a weird mental chasm that I haven't crossed where I'm just like, yeah, I'm not smoking pot right now. I'm focused on eating well and, and, and working out. Um, but I guess, uh, I guess no one likes a quitter. So I don't want to proclaim myself to be a quitter. <laughs> I'm taking a break. Yeah. Well, I, I don't <laughs> think it's like for me, like pot is not so addictive. Uh, definitely. If you get in a habit of doing it all the time, you can, I think you can fall into a rut. And, you know, since it's kind of like, uh, it gives you a rush. It gives you a high obviously. And that high you pay for by, um, having less of a high during an off moment when you're not smoking pot. Um, yeah, and it's an interesting thing to bring up the addictiveness of pot because I think there's a lot of controversy there and a lot of people would argue like, pot's not addictive and okay, whether it is or is not chemically addictive, it's absolutely behaviorally addictive and, um, or at least it was for me, I guess I can only speak for myself. I was absolutely addicted to it, whether it was chemical or behaviorally. Um, and when I quit, I full blown went through withdrawals and I don't know if that's just because I was so in the habit of doing one thing or if I was truly chemically addicted, I don't know, but, um, it feels like splitting hairs because I was definitely addicted. Yeah. I have heard people say that actually come to think where they, if they don't smoke pot cause they smoke it every night and if they don't smoke it that night, then they get a headache or something like that or uh, can't sleep. Yeah. Things like that. I got fairly bad withdrawals and I think most of the symptoms were, I couldn't sleep. I really had trouble sleeping for a while. And you lose your appetite, which is a weird thing. Um, but uh, an irritability. You just turn into an asshole. Like quitting smoking cigarettes, I, I equate it to. I never had to do the... I smoked when I was a young kid, but I never smoked enough to have any problem with quitting. Um, but, you know, the story is when people quit smoking cigarettes, they're, they're addicted to be around for a couple weeks. Yeah. I was certainly addicted to be around for a couple of weeks. I did my best and I was aware of what I was doing. And I told my wife, obviously I'm quitting. So like, give me a little slack here. If I'm a dick, just ignore me. And, uh, it all went fine, but I was definitely an irritable, short tempered, uh, jerk there for a little while. So thanks yeah. to her for putting up with that, that, uh, jerkitude 
until I was done. And I came out of it a much better person and a better dad, honestly. It sounds yeah. cheesy to say, but oh. um, it's better for me to be a dad who doesn't smoke pot because my tendency is not to do anything in moderation. I'm not good at like, oh, I'll only smoke pot once in a while when I happen to see a friend or at night when the boys go to sleep or, you know, just when it just when it's convenient and not not an not an intrusion on my fatherhood. That's when I'll smoke pot like that doesn't work for me. Uh, I if I do something, I have to do it all the time. And if I leave any room open to smoke pot, I'll smoke it all the time. That's just me. So I don't know. Maybe it's different for other people. They're able to manage occasional smokage. I was not. So for me, it's better just to not do it at all. I, I generally am like that as well, or have been historically like that as well, where like if I drink, I'm just going to go all the way out. And if yeah. I smoke pot, I'm going to go all the way out. But I have changed that. The one thing that has been somewhat, I don't want to say remarkable, it's not that big of a deal, but somewhat remarkable is just my tolerance not to do too much of anything. So like I, I will drink, um, lit quite literally one or two drinks a night, you know, and that's not every night. Uh, but, yeah. but I stop right there and just never has that ever happened with me before. I don't know. I, I guess I've just kind of crossed, uh, maybe a body connection. I feel like there may be there where I you become know, becoming a dad probably has something to play in there, right? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. That has something to play with it. But, but also too, I think it really like, like I can feel the, the feedback loop I think has been completed inside my brain. So the feedback loop being like, okay, I feel this way now. And my body like intuitively knows that, okay, you cross this point right here. You're going to really feel like shit tomorrow or, mm -hmm. you know, some along those lines. So I, it's like, okay, I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to ride this out. And then, you know, it was fun while it lasted. I, I kind of was able to catch a breath and relax. Yeah, or maybe, I'm, maybe I'll chill for a little while, have a little water and eat some food or something. And maybe I will or will not have another beer later. But if I keep drinking right now, I'm just going to end up drunk and hungover. And maybe some of that comes with maturity and experience. Um, you know, I think it all probably plays into the decision-making process. But um, it is interesting to kind of reflect on yourself to say, wow, look at what I've become. Uh, someone who's really concerned about being a dad and the example I set for my kids. And I don't want to be drunk. Like, I'll still drink a beer or two here and there. I don't do it often, uh, but that's purely just because I don't have an opportunity to and I don't often buy beer at the store anymore. Like, But if there's one there and someone hands me a beer, I'm like, oh, sweet, I'll drink a beer. But it really will only be like one or two-ish uh, in most scenarios. Because... Yeah. I don't want to be drunk. It's just an inconvenience when I'm still trying to be a dad. Like it's harder to chase kids around when you're when you're buzzed and tired. And then I certainly don't want to be drunk around them. I don't want them to see me drunk. Uh, that's that's weird and not yeah. cool. So I don't want to do that. Um, and definitely with the pot thing, like I don't want them to see me high or smell pot and remember it. Like since my wife brought this up and I thought it was a really good point. So like even if I was to go out in the garage here and there and smoke and then hide it from them and I come in and I put on cologne or whatever. I can do all that shit, but they're still going to smell pot. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to know what it is. They're too young, but they'll smell it and their brain will remember it. And then later on in life, they're going to smell pot and know what it is. And then their brain is going to connect those dots and go, oh, I smelled that on my dad when he came back yeah. in from the garage that one time. And I mm -hmm. thought, fuck, that's totally how that works. Because we've all had that weird scent 
that brings back a long gone memory uh, that you're like, whoa, that scent totally reminded me of my grandma's house or whatever it is. And it's weird how scent can be connected to memory, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and nothing's hidden either. I, I think that, you know, they they know you're high or they know that something changed and and you're now sure. a little bit calmer or something happened that has made you act differently in a way more relaxed or whatever it is. But yeah. They they know that everybody knows that like it's not a you know, especially when you live with somebody like huh I've never seen Dad eat a whole box of fruity pebbles before that's, <laughs> that's new all right he's pouring a uh, a bowl of cookie crisp yeah like is he gonna give me any or is he just gonna eat the whole box of cookie crisp on his own over oh oh yeah no he's he just ate the whole box of cookie crisp on his own okay all right well something's different about Dad today. Oh, you know, you want some of that cookie crisp right now. Yeah, dude, Fruity Pebbles, man. I don't need any of that shit anymore, but I still dream about it. I love it. <laughs> Fruity Pebbles. Yeah. Man. Dude, I hate to cut unnaturally, because uh, this is a fun conversation, but I do have a hard out. I got to hit the road and rap. Sure. Dude. So this has been a very fun conversation. We got into some interesting territory, and... uh yeah, I feel a little bit vulnerable, honestly. I opened up a little bit about some personal shit, about quitting pot and depression and all that. But it feels good to say it. It's true, so why not say it? Yeah, no, it, it, it could help somebody. You know, you never know. Yeah, maybe. Just all right. telling the truth, so. Yeah. All right. Well, time to find talking to you, D. I hope you have a great rest of the week and a great weekend. You too. So give my love right. to the family, and uh, you guys have a great weekend. You do the same, man. Talk to you soon. All right, see you, bro. Hey, this is Mike. Thanks a lot for listening. We really hope you're enjoying the show. We have a great time doing it for you. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Derek and Mike Pod or on our website, DerekandMike.com. And uh, don't forget to subscribe or follow the show in your podcast app. That would be super cool. Helps us out a ton. And it also makes sure that you get notified every time we put out a new episode. Also, if you know of anyone else who might like the show, share it with a friend. Tell someone who might dig it. That would be super cool. We'd really appreciate any support you can give us. Uh, we really appreciate you, and we can't wait to talk to you next time. And until then, have a good one.